And this is WMNF Tampa. True Talk is pre-recorded today. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Summer is uh, traveling today and today we're going to have a special guest. A, uh, an imam is blessing our studio and I'm going to have a conversation with Imam uh, Derek Pete. So uh, Imam Derek Pete will be here to tell us um, about his story. We're going to learn about him. Actually, it's a two-part series. May end up being three parts. So uh, next week, we're going to also continue that conversation uh, with Imam Derek Pete. This is True Talk on WMNF. We'll be right back after this short music break. studio with me is Imam Derek Pete, who's uh, our guest for today and actually next week as well. Um, welcome to True Talk, uh, Imam Derek. Hi. Hi, welcome, thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Imam, uh, before we get to um, um, Islam and um, what the religion is about, um, I wanted to know a little bit more about you, but first, like, your name is uh, Imam Derek P. What is an imam? So an imam is um, a community leader, spiritual leader, teacher, uh, preacher, really a combination of things. Um, you're really uh, looking to, to, to serve community, you know, and um, and the, the call to God. How did you... Uh, what made you an imam? How did you become one? Did you just uh, put the label to your name, or uh, yeah? So that's a, that's an interesting story. What's your imam journey? My so 
it began when I first graduated from the University of Florida. Um, it's funny the people that, that God puts in your life at particular times, because that's, of course, a time of transition, just graduating from college and then, you know, finalizing what I was going to do next. Right at that time, we had, and there in South Florida, we um, had a, had an imam. Who University was, of uh, Florida is not in South Florida, by the way. Well, yeah, it's I, in Gainesville. It's Gainesville, Florida. Yeah. yeah. But you were saying South Florida? But but I was uh, raised in South Florida. Oh, okay. So you're originally from South, or like yeah. you're raised in South Florida. Okay. Yeah. So um, after graduating, went back home, um, started to study with this local local imam, well Yahya Ederer is his name, John Ederer, who was also a convert and had studied overseas, um, studied in Kuwait, studied in Egypt, and I was just fascinated, you know, and really mesmerized by, you know, the fact that he was a convert but also studied the religion, and just really taken in, so started singing, sitting in his classes, classes and benefiting from him. And in our conversations, he just you know blurted out one one day, said, "What do you think about starting? What do you think about giving khutbas? You start to, you know giving sermons." I said, "You know, I'm not qualified to give sermons." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, he said, "Well, we want you. I want you to um, consider giving sermons and also consider studying overseas." Um, and I said, you know, how, how would I do that? And he said, well, you know, there's a university that I know called the Islamic American University, and uh, they give scholarships, and I think this would be a good idea for you. So immediately I was excited, I was taken in, and long story short, after about six months, I was in Cairo, Egypt, studying mm. Arabic. Wow. Um, and so that's the beginning of the journey studying Arabic, also studying other Islamic sciences. Um, yeah, so that's how it began. And um, That was 2009. Yeah. And then when did you finish your studying? I finished my studies in 2017. Um, uh, after... It's like eight years. Yeah, after leaving... So I ended up uh, leaving Egypt and transferring to Jordan where I finished my bachelor's degree. Um, so... That's, you know, so I finished studying things about Islamic law, the belief system. I completed that in Jordan um, and a degree in... I see you have a habit of tapping the table. Yeah, which, it's, it's a thing that you pick up when but, but the, you give lectures. Think, and, yeah, people you, get annoyed on the radio. Oh, you, they'll hear it sometimes. Yeah, they hear like thumping in their oh, radio. So Sometimes um, I do it to, you know, to either... Like when, when on the membar, you kind of explain to people by... What's the membar? Oh, right. It's the uh, the pulpit in the mosque. <laughs> so you, you, you know, end up, um, you know, using your hands to kind of illustrate to people even though they can't see me. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I've completed my studies there in Jordan. And, you know, alhamdulillah, it was just a blessing my time overseas. Broadened my horizons, learned so much about, um, you know, learned so much about myself about the people there. And I guess it was really a, a, a critical in my growth as a Muslim in seeing the Islamic land, seeing Muslims in context, in their own cultures, um, not as a minority, but fully as a majority uh, settled in their own communities. And also seeing the Islamic heritage and legacy, um, uh, um, you know, like being in Cairo, for example, and being in the old city, that was really transformative 
I once prayed in the month of Ramadan, which is the month of, you know, that Muslims fast. It's actually in two months. Uh, we're, we'll be fasting the, the entire month. And I went, I think it was the 27th night of, of Ramadan, um, 2010, prayed with about 100,000 other people. 100,000 other people praying together in an ancient mosque, which is a, over 1,000 years old. And that was powerful. That wow. was um, really transformative. Um, yeah, so those sorts of experiences, you know, that's, those stay with you for a lifetime. Um, yeah, so that was the, um, some, some highlights of the journey. Were you, were you born Muslim? Actually, I was not. Oh, converted when did you become Muslim? Converted to Islam in 2003. So 2003, how old were you then? Or 16. Well, in six, so this was in high school? Yeah, I was a junior in high school. Well, that's so interesting. What, what, like, what? Usually, uh, juniors in high school are not really thinking about faith. Like, yeah. what? Well, you were in South Florida at the time. Uh, South Florida. You know, there's a few different factors that I, I can give for that. I think the primary factor is a tragic one. Uh, my father died when I was 11 years old, um, un unexpectedly. Uh, pa uh, he, he passed away, and from and so from an early age. I was forced to take life more seriously than most adolescents do. Um, for better or for worse, that was, um, you know, you know, I had to think about the fragility of life at a very early age. I had to give consideration to death, not because I wanted to, but, you know, it was just, it just, it just was what it was. Um, so in that context, um, everything just became more serious for me. I become, became more like, um, I guess, introverted um, and, you know, was always thinking, always giving things thought. And amongst these things that you give thought is God and religion. Um, and that caught my attention from, I think, 13, 14, really caught my attention. And then, you know, there on out is all about searching, is researching and thinking about my own identity thinking about God, thinking about... At that young age, you were thinking about these things. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, obviously, that's different than when other uh, kids your age were thinking about. Yeah. So did you uh, ever express these things with other people or you just kind of stayed to yourself or...? Mm. So at times I was by myself. At times I was by myself. Um, at, but at other times, I also had friends who... Um, who yeah, discuss, I would discuss things with periodically. Um, but really it was, um, was self-exploration, just in all honesty. It was just me looking things up online. Um, and What were you looking for? In a word, truth. Just uh, to reality. You know, amongst the, the early question that I had was that, okay, we have different types of faith, right, that all claim to be right. So whether that's Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they claim to be right. Um, logically, you know, my position was that, well, one must be right. Not everything can be right. And I didn't need to make a decision for myself which one is right. So and that would require, you know, exploration, uh, researching. Um, Why did you feel like you needed to make a decision? I mean, I, I just feel like most yeah. 
teenagers, they just don't want to make any decisions. They just... Maybe you go with the flow. <laughs> yeah, they just go with the flow. They're like, you know, they just get up and yeah, I consume guess, television or whatever, there, you know. There, there's certain things that God really just put, thrust into your heart. And they become these questions that really grip you. So 2003, you were 16. Yeah. Your father had died five years prior. Yeah. Now this after 9-11 with the tragic events. Mm -hmm. So you know the yeah. perception of Muslims in America. It's not like, you know, nobody wants to be on the team Muslim. Yeah. But somehow you, when you're looking at these things, you're actually considered uh, Islam. So how did you go about looking at Islam? You know, so... That's the, so one fun factor is definitely my, my father. But the second factor, when, and when mo most people ask me about why I converted, um, I tell them Malcolm X. Oh. I mean, just for, for shorthand, um, Malcolm X. It was seeing a man who went through trials, tribulations, and, you know, picked himself up, dusted himself off, educated himself, rectified his character, stood for his people, stood for what was right, and was always a person of growth, looking to, you know, correct himself and, and really search for truth um, and search for that which would liberate himself and also liberate his people. So um, it, it, Malcolm is still an inspiration to me t to this day. And he definitely inspired my my, uh, my conversion to Islam. Uh, how were you introduced to Malcolm X? The film about him came out in uh, 1992. Yeah. Obviously, his autobiography, you know, was way before that. So, yeah. So I think I, I may have like I would see snippets of the movie as a child. You know, of course, uh, famously acted out by um, Denzel Denzel Washington, and um, you know, I, I we I. I Originally, my family were from Jamaica. Okay, because and, you're, I guess, would you consider yourself African American? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, I said I mentioned Jamaica because um, there's a strong activist vibe on in, in Jamaica, on the island, and in the culture and the music, calling for um, you know um, uh, human rights. Mm -hmm. Talking about um, uh, uh, Africa, Afrocentric themes, talking about you know returning to Africa, giving Black people their dignity, and you know, so there's, that vibe is there in the culture. So um, it was it was kind of natural for me as a Jamaican American slash African American that what Malcolm said would vibe with me because one of Malcolm's main influences was Mark Marcus Garvey another Jamaican. Mm. And um, so that was definitely, you know, it, so what, what, where Malcolm was coming from immediately, you know, would um, resonate with me, resonate at a very, very deep level. So when I heard Malcolm, that, you know, it, it felt like, it just felt natural, it felt like water. Um, and it felt, it felt indigenous. It felt like me. Um, so you found out that Mark, I mean Malcolm X became Muslim, mm -hmm. and that you know you started searching. Mm -hmm. So what was it about Islam that, I guess, at that moment that got you, or you were convinced, or you had to join? Yeah. So the primary thing, I'll give a, I'll give a story. 
Um, so I was interested, interested in Islam for several months before, or maybe even a year before I eventually converted. Um, so I would read online about Islam, but I was also reading about Buddhism, Hinduism. I was reading about Judaism, different faiths. I was, you know, was of course as a Jamaican, knew I was familiar with the Rastafarian movement. Um, so I was sitting in my, it was my 10th grade, it was actually my 10th grade history class. And we were doing the world religions at that time, did Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity. And finally we got to Islam. That was exciting for me. So I was sitting there in class, the teacher was lecturing and I actually was reading ahead in the book. And as I read ahead, it just occurred to me that this is extraordinary, extraordinarily simple. This is so basic. This is so straightforward. And I had the audacity to raise my hand in class and ask the teacher, well, if this is what Islam is, why isn't everybody Muslim? <laughs> I don't know where this just came out. I just couldn't, couldn't hold it back. But very simple religion, very straightforward, very simple beliefs, belief in one God, belief in uh, praying to him, repenting when you make mistakes, um, a religion that's sent for all of humanity. There's no racism, racism in Islam. It's a religion of... Uh, of, of solidarity between people, um, giving to charity, taking care of the orphan, uh, looking out for women's rights, um, looking out for the rights of all minorities. So it's like, this is, this is incredible. That's, that was going through my mind back then in 10th grade. So, you know, from that point on, it was like a sort of obsession. Um, so that was the immediate attraction. It's the simplicity uh, mm. of, of the, um, of Islam. And this is True uh, Talk on WMNF. I'm speaking to Imam Derek Pete um, right now about his journey to Islam and how he became an imam. It's actually a two-part series. You mentioned women's rights in there. We definitely want to talk about that in um, future uh, uh, interviews. But right now we're focusing uh, on your journey. Did the teacher respond when you asked, uh, why isn't everybody Muslim? You know, everybody always, always asks me that question. But So her response was... Um, that well, everybody has their own cultures and own and their own modes of religious expression. Um, you know, that's a satisfactory. It was a satisfactory answer, generally. But for me, in particularly, for me in particular, I wanted to know like what was right because one for me, one of the religions has to be right, and for me, that was appearing very much to be Islam. Um, and I, I'd say from that point on, that was. Clearly, what that what I was going towards Islam is what I what I would choose. Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever envision yourself that you're going to be an imam at some point, at that young age? Or you know, a few months in, after interacting with the community, I wanted to be an imam. You know, I said, you you know, I want to study. I want to do things that an imam would do. Then I was told to to not be an imam by by a particular member of the community. And that, that will be important later on. Because then I'll get to that, why that was important. And that, that's, it, was good, it was good advice, and I'll explain why. And that explanation is, is important. Um, but then, so I turned my mind away from being an imam 
and I was, you know, studied journalism and Arabic in, 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 at UF, University of Florida. Um, with the, the intent was I wanted to do a PhD um, or, or attend law school. Um, but then upon gradu- graduating, it's like a ton of feelings and a desire to really know the religion at a deeper level. They just overcame me. Um, and I felt like if I didn't study, I would basically lose it. I mean, it was just something, it was irresistible. Lose what? Lose, well, lose my faith, lose my mind, just lose, you, you know, just, you know, when they say get a grip, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, if I don't do this, I won't. It, it was just like an, a sort of impulse that I couldn't ignore, mm-hmm. that I need to study, need to give this time. It's not something that I can put off. I need to, I need to do it. How did you spend your college years? I mean, the University of Florida is known as a, one of the biggest party <laughs> cities in the country. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, well, I don't, you know, you don't have, this no confession. You don't have to confess here to anything, but did the faith help you through that time? Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's, uh, you hear wild things happening in the Gatorland. Yeah. I was um, protected from so much stuff because of, you know, just from, from the faith. And also the IOC, Islam on campus there at University of Florida. They just they, what is that? Is a it's student a, group? It's a student a Muslim student association, mm-hmm. association of association of students, Muslim students that come together to basically form a um, a group, uh, get together to get have you know uh, gatherings in Ramadan and to bring lecture lectures uh, to have con- religious conferences. And this really was a source of a lot of guidance for me. Of religious growth and understanding, um, so yeah, it was, it was a huge source of um, protection. I mean, I had, I knew people, I had friends and in, 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 you lived in the dorms that were not of you know any particular religious persuasion, but many of these students, they were in the dorms and they just had to go home. Why? Because they were simply just partying all the time, couldn't get any work done or didn't get any work done, and. You know, unfortunately, they had to. Be, they had to leave school. Just had to leave. It's too much. Um, just too much. I feel often, it's times like feel like you know, college when you just you take kids out of high school from the, you know under the roof of their parents and just throw them out yes. there in this like huge universities, and it's hard for many of them to adjust. And then it's like it's a bit traumatic. Huge adjustment for me, even even with IOC, even with you know being trying to be as as observant as I could. It was, it was very difficult. And I think... Did, um, I mean, did people look at you like you're weird or like, well, hey, all the time. You're, you're not the norm here. All you're like, the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so how did you... And with the desire of like, humans to be accepted, yeah. to be popular, to like not be like, you know... And, you know, you're, uh, mashallah, handsome uh, man and stuff. It's not like you're deficient. But to have those things and then to still be like treated like, oh, you're a weirdo, you know, why aren't you acting like the rest of us? Yeah, so, you know, it's really, it was, it was, it was a, a tough thing, but I think that the brotherhood that we had there at, at UF mm-hmm. and that there were certain older brothers that were there, I don't know if I didn't, I, I'm willing to even mention their names, some of these guys, because they were just stand-up guys, these guys it, really. It was more like, it's like a fraternity of. It was, it, it, Functioned like that, mm-hmm. without a, the without, Greek fraternity, without any hazing and okay. without the controversial <laughs> stuff, of course. Um, not to be offensive, but um, just a, a support system. Uh, you know that older brothers were there because when I got there, I was just I was a kid. 
I mean, I didn't need, I didn't know how to take the bus. That I mean, when in Florida, of course, we usually have cars. We don't yeah. really rely on bus, buses so much. But that's the first time that I was basically forced to take the bus and figure out my own way. My mom wouldn't be taking me to the supermarket anymore. I had to go shop for myself, clean for myself, wash my own clothes, you know, make sure that everything was in order for myself. And having older brothers to say, do X, Y, and Z, go here, go there, do this, avoid that, it was, it was huge. Um, you know, and that's something I think we as Muslims have to look to develop, these sort of support systems and put our full weight behind that sort of support, you know, human resources and having this sort of, so sort of support for our Muslim youth that are in the most, the most um, uh, maybe volatile and also vulnerable mm -hmm. point in their lives. The the those most, moments of transition. Those moments of transition because, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's tough. And we, we know it, but sometimes we, um, we don't put the effort in. We don't, we don't put enough effort into knowing what, we need, knowing what we need to do and then having an action plan and following through with that. Unfortunately, sometimes we allow certain, we allow certain names and certain little petty divisions to come between us um, as human beings and also as Muslims that effectively... Um, really just hurt the next generation. That's what it does. It's, it's harmful. Uh, uh, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is Ahmed Bidir. I'm speaking with my guest, Derek Pete, Imam Derek Pete, uh, American-born, uh, Jamaican roots, and uh, African-American. And uh, now as an Imam, you're actually, you're a product of America. I am. And, and now you're, you're, you're an Imam, a, a Muslim leader in the community, uh, calling and uh, advising and counseling Muslims. Um, but you're not from overseas, you're from here. So you decided to go on this journey to become an Imam and study abroad. Why did you need to go study abroad? There, it seems like there's not adequate or enough, I guess, Islamic uh, universities here yeah, that teach. Definitely, maybe there's more resources now than back then. Um, I think there um, we've we've, we've um, come a long way in terms of the community as, as far as having educational resources and institutions. But back then there wasn't that much, especially for uh, immersion into Arabic. Um, there was. Why is the Arabic important? Well, Arabic is the um, it's the you know, they call it the lugua lugua franca or the common tongue, um, common tongue amongst amongst Muslims. This is the language of the Quran and also the language of the Prophet Muhammad. Peace be upon him. When you say language of the Quran, so unless you know Arabic, you can't be Muslim or know the Quran. Well, it's it's a it's a it's a means of um, it's a mode mode of conveyance. But any anyone from any particular language or racial background or ethnicity can be can be a Muslim. It's just that the um, scripture is preserved in the Arabic language and the religion is preserved in the Arabic language. But they will then find different ex uh, uh, expressions in the varying languages of the world. Because uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, that was his native language and the Quran was revealed to him in that language and has been preserved since then in that same language. Mm -hmm. So you're saying the author, if you want to get to the exact source or read and, and understand from the exact source instead of translations, that's why Arabic is so important. Yeah, so how long did you study Arabic? 
Um, in some ways, I'm still studying it. Okay. <laughs> so I said, you know, it, it, yeah. So you know, begin again from my first convert con- converted, just reading the Arabic, learning to read the Arabic script, and then University of Florida studying the fundamentals of the grammar, what they call morphology, building my vocabulary, then transition to Egypt to study, you know, for more complete immersion into an Arab, uh, Arab society, study at a language institute there. Um, Was Egypt the first uh, Arab country you went to? Yes. I mean, Muslim country. Yes. Muslim and Arab. Yeah. Now, you had already been, how many years had you been Muslim at that point? Um, I guess uh, six years. Yeah. So... Uh, you've read about Islam, you've read about Muslims, you interacted with some of them on college campuses in America and in the community at the mosque uh, in South Florida. Um, but now you went to a Muslim-majority country. Mm-hmm. And was it as you expected it? Was it different? Was it a culture shock? What What did you find there? Yeah, definitely a, a culture shock. I mean, I think that, that's it's typical. How so? It's a tip that's actually, I mean, in hindsight, I'd say it's to be expected. But um, as a young, you know, recent college graduate, you can be a little bit idealistic. Mm-hmm. You know, or the world's supposed to be this particular way. And we have to, not to be condescending to any young people, but as young people, we can be idealistic and maybe, you know, have, have a picture of the world in our minds that it's not really accurate, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So uh, it was a definitely a, definitely a culture shock. So it was a wake up call. It was it was a, yeah it was a wake up call in many different ways. I mean, did, so when you say you were idealistic, when you were reading about this faith, yeah, and this community of Muslims, mm-hmm. and this time at which you idealized, I guess that you you found in the books, you were hoping to go there and find that same kind of community. Basically, that, I was hoping to that pro- you read about in the books. Yeah, I was hoping to project that idealistic image in my mind just on a society and it's all going to be good and great and rosy. And, and you didn't find that there. didn't find that. Not, not, you know, I mean, alhamdulillah, you find good people. But in terms of the idealistic image, you know, it's also part of life that you grow, you learn. You see how life is really lived. You see how people live in different ways. And you learn, you grow, your, your you know, horizons are expanded. Of course, sometimes, you know, culture shocks do happen. I think it happens to anyone be a person coming from Egypt or Saudi Arabia or Palestine to America, definitely it's going to be a culture shock. Mm-hmm. So it goes both ways. Um, so yeah, def- definitely, def- definitely a, a culture shock, um, you know, going to Egypt initially. But also, you know, a lot of learning, a lot of like really wholesome growth. I'd say one of the first early lessons that I picked up in Egypt was just being humble as a, as a person. How so? Um, well, in the, sometimes in Western education, the, the development of a person's character is, it's basically your education is separated from character development, but you, you get the sense in Egypt that when you educate yourself and you approach knowledge or you approach people, there are certain customs and norms and manners are really, really important how you, you know, so, so, and I saw that legacy there in Egypt of people being humble. And also, I mean, coming from the West, coming from, I mean, we're pri- pri- privileged as Americans. And sometimes we think that that privilege sometimes leads, leads us to arrogance. Everybody should be like us. You know, everybody should, you know, for example, you need to bring democracy to them, right? These ideas. Um, and that affects us in ways that sometimes makes us 
um, a little bit, you know, uh, arrogant. So um, going to Egypt and seeing that, wait a second, not everybody lives the way we do in the States, nor should they live that way. And some people uh, maybe live in very um, difficult living situations, but you still find these people with a level of dignity and also a level of humility, a level of humanity that it's, um, it's a really beautiful thing. So that's one of the early lessons that I picked up in Egypt is the humility. Um, yeah, that, that, that really that, that sticks out. Mm. When you were there during that period, that same period, there was a lot of turmoil in the Middle East. There was the Arab Spring that came up. There were, counter, uh, there were revolutions and counter-revolutions. There were um, the chaos that happened in Iraq and um, in, in Syria and breaking up of that country and, the, you know, the ISIS coming about as a result of the wars. So all these things were happening there. Was How did that impact you when you're seeing all these images, horrific images of groups like ISIS that mm-hmm. were obviously acting outside and completely opposite from mm-hmm. what you were learning? What was your reaction to it, or did you, or were you at that point already comfortable or solid in your religion and deen that you knew how to deal with it? If I, if I said it was all rosy, I'd be lying. Mm-hmm. If I said it was easy experiencing the Egyptian revolution, wouldn't be telling the truth. The journey overseas wasn't easy. It wasn't always perfect. Sometimes it was downright hard and, you know, um, many ways traumatic. Um, that, that's a part of the journey. You know, seeing the um, Egyptian revolution and, you know, being in a foreign country that, you know, it was really uh, the revolution um, occurred, I think. 2011. Yeah, 2011. It's actually, um, today is, it, it, the the anniversary of the revolution mm. was yesterday, January wow. 25th, 2011. Wow. And um, right now it would have been, yeah, 2011 and, and Mubarak, who was the dictator of that country for a long time, uh, stepped down in February, February 12th or 11th, I, I believe. So there was a lot of turmoil during that period. But then even post that, there was a lot of yes. uh, turmoil that was happening up until, you know, even uh, 2013 when the military staged the coup and overthrew the yeah. government. And so there was a lot of back and forth. Yeah, it was... Um yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, so 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 much to, to to say concerning that, especially that period right there. You know, that time in Egypt, it was um, it was it, it was it was stressful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> was your education interrupted? Did you? Yes, have- so I had to come back home. Actually, I come came back to the states. Um, I eventually went back to Egypt, but I had to come back. I came back home for like a month. Because um, we didn't know what was going to happen, and also the American embassy, you know, recommended that all American citizens leave the country. So um, when we heard that, me and um, other friends, we we um, we, we left. Um, yeah, so that I mean that was also you know a sad thing because you know I dedicated myself to a particular course of study, and then you know basically you know that seemed to be in jeopardy. So um, that that um, so that means that's a further culture shock from what the image that you had idealized about that region, and now you see yeah, so much because, fighting. You know, one of the things that um, you hear about Egypt, or that you knew about Egypt for, for, for under under Mubarak, that there was stability, 
you know, and, and you and also that um, you know, there was um, not that it was perfect. I'm not saying that, but um, especially being in Egypt, um, it felt like things were. Um, it felt like things would be would 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 be okay. Even like when the religious revolution first started, my teacher he told me. Um, this this is going to end after a few days. The people are going to go home after a few days. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Um, so um, when it then continued, that was like, okay, what, what's going to happen? You know, in a foreign country. Um, you know, yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was quite quite an experience. Um, that probably the biggest thing was not even so much. It wasn't the tear gas. It wasn't the noise. It wasn't like hearing gunshots. What really I think was the most um, difficult for me and a close friend of mine was that we really didn't know what was going on. The uncertainty? Uncertainty factor. That was... that. How did, did your faith help you? Pressure. I mean, uh, now that you're an imam and you've finished yeah. or at least did a lot of courses, mm-hmm. uh, people have a lot of anxiety about uncertainty, whether yeah. it's in their personal lives. I mean, it doesn't even just have to be on a yeah. country level. How do you tell people to cope with uncertainty now? Really, we have to recognize, you know, it really goes back to tying our identity as servants of God and that God is really in control. And he was in control before we had control of anything. Like we didn't bring ourselves into this life. We didn't really feed or take care of ourselves for the first few years. Um, and then when we're given a little bit of control, or a little bit of understanding, we then start to worry about things that God is fundamentally in control of and he will be in, of, he's, he is in control of and he will be in control of. So in many ways, you just have to have knowledge of that, that that same God, provider, sustainer that sustained us in the past, that currently sustains us now, right? That he's going to continue to do that in the future and not let anything get in the way of that. That, that sort of, that knowledge and also self-knowledge, knowing who we are. Um, of course, easier said than done. This is why in the religion we have, um, you know, the, the daily prayers and also recitation of Quran, that we're effectively reminded of these important lessons. Um, but, but back then, of course, very stressful. I think um, the, um, the, and also more stressful because we weren't going to the mosque, we weren't interacting with people, we were just in the house. Mm. Um, so we didn't have that communal feel anymore where you can see someone, talk to them and you know, find out kind of what's going on. For the first, I think, two days, we just had to stay in the house because we seriously didn't know what we would see if we went outside. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, being um, the faith definitely um, helped me through at that time. And also having my friend with me, that, that, was, that was huge. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned God in, in control. Who is God? So God, he is the creator of the universe. He is, he is one. He uh, is, the, is the sustainer, meaning that he gives creation life, but also sustains it, sustains it throughout its, um, the term of its life. Any, any particular creature or being other than God, is sustained by God. So God is, is he who, one, he's called upon. He's the sustainer, but he's the, he's, he is the one who needs nothing, but everything needs him. 
This is one of the concise descriptions of God. That does God needs nothing, mm. but everything everything needs Him. Does God have a gender? No. Uh, but you're you're referring to Him as He. So we say He, because that's this is the appropriate um, gen, uh, like uh, a linguistic gender in Arabic um, that you'd use for God. There's no no neuter. There's no it in in, in Arabic. Um, so everything is either he or she. Like in other language, uh, in gendered languages, um, so the the pro pronoun used for God is he, even though God is not a man. So God is not a man or a woman. No. But it's, I guess that's where it's different in the Christian. Mm. So 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 we believe that so God he creates male and female, and he makes that male and female a sign of him, and that a sign that points back to his oneness. Um, so. Yes, some fundamental differences here with um, other faiths, such as, such as Christianity. We believe that Christianity, um, that originally, um, that the, the sense of God as Father was something that was metaphorical. It was an expression of love, of, of care, of an overseer, of a being that gives life to humankind, but at the same time wasn't to be taken literal in the sense of God having an actual gender or particular body parts that would indicate gender or anything like that. Hmm. Um, where is God? So uh, God... In, in your belief system. So, so, so God is uh, beyond space and time. Uh, theological discussion here, but that God, he exists in a realm that is beyond space and beyond time. Um, that I mean, we can. It's a, it's a long discussion, but we don't uh, restrict God to place or to time. But He creates space, He creates time, and He exists in a way that transcends all of these sort of descriptions. Um, yeah, so He exists in a realm that is um, fundamentally di different than one of space and time. It's a realm of uh, of yeah, one one that can be. Experience spiritually, but uh, attempting to describe it spatially um, or or in terms of time, it doesn't uh, wouldn't apply. When you uh, close your eyes, if you close your eyes now, go ahead, and you imagine God, what do you see? Um, Is there anything there? What I would imagine is, well, I've trained myself over the years to. Not, coming from Christianity, I've trained my, myself over the years to not, you know, uh, attribute any pictures to God. But when, uh, if I was to attempt to do that, it would be really blinding light. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a blinding light that you, you, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to um, effectively see past. Um, and of course, something that our prophet explains, peace be upon him, that you know, this, that this light, these veils will only be effectively revealed on the Day of Judgment. This is when we have what they call the beatific vision, where we see God in his full majesty, and we see the reality of what it means to be, to be God. If you did that exercise when you were a teenager, before you were a Muslim, you saw something else? Yeah. Oh, interesting. A, a man on a throne. Really? As a Christian, you see a man. Is that, I wonder what our listeners uh, see. Maybe you could email us at truetalk at wmnf.org. If you close your eyes now, and what do you imagine, and send me that. Because when I close my eyes, I just see blank. Yeah. 
I guess because I've never attributed, like in my own mind, I've never attributed any image because I was born Muslim. I've never attributed any images to God. Mm. So it's just space. You're, 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 you're preconditioned to do that. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're raised to um, not associate any of your own thoughts or superimpose, you know, to project your ideas upon God. I don't see like a Muhammad. I don't see mm. a, you know, I just don't. I just see just, it's blank, like it's, mm. and I guess that's consistent with, you know, in the Quran where it says there's nothing like unto him, mm -hmm. describing who God right. is. Whatever we imagine it, it's something different because yeah. it's beyond our imagination. Because what we imagine is whatever we experienced. Yeah. Whatever, you know, whatever we our eyes have seen. Yeah. So, like, how do you imagine something that you've never seen, never yeah, and been you know exposed when, when, to when one starts to study the Quran and also practice the faith, and you see how God describes Himself in the Quran, you come to know that all of your physical experiences with the world, that God is also teaching you about Himself, but indirectly, mm -hmm. so that this world that we're in, we we learn about God, we we experience. God, God's characteristics. For example, Rahma or Lutf. You, we experience these things all the time. And this is how God introduces himself. So then we see this creation as a kind of, um, I don't know if I say intermediary or go-between or a tool, a tool for knowledge that God teaches us through, um, by way of um, these experiences. Even though these physical objects are time-space, it's not God himself. He will teach by way of that. So, so some, somebody has uh, sent a message uh, saying uh, to see God, you know, open your eyes. How do you see God when you open your eyes? That is really beautiful. Right? I think, uh, but so I need to explain a little bit. Yeah. I think, I, you know, first explanation I would give is I was once in the, um, in a line at a, at a Chick-fil-A buying some French fries for my son and a person said that my ch uh, had, a, had a bumper sticker. It said that my church is nature. Mm. My church is nature. For me, that, that was really powerful because when we are in nature, when we are off the grid, when we're disconnected, we are connected, we are connecting to God's signs. So that when you look out into the world, you will see, you will see manifestations of God's attributes, right? We're not saying that God is in the world or you're, you're seeing Allah, you're seeing God, but you do see his actions and that he's in control of all things. Um, but especially in nature now, when you look out onto nature, this is when God is showing you signs of himself. So mm -hmm. that in nature, you're seeing God's signs. Um, so in many ways, um, if you want to see God, you know, open your eyes. And is you can it, also, you know, to experience God, also maybe meditate by closing your eyes too. Is that why you think we live in a less godly world, that people have moved away from faith because less people are spending time in nature? Definitely. In the words, yes. Um, you know, it's one of, one of the things that um, even, I think it's been studied that the more people can see the stars, the more they connect to the unseen, the more they're thinking about God, the more they're thinking about heaven, the other life. And these stars, of course, meant to be, you know, being out in nature, away from, you know, the light pollution. That when you look towards the heavens, you're, you're, you reconnect to that beauty. 
But you re- reconnect to what we call that, as again, going back to that word, fitra, that state of primordiality, of being neutral, of being in tune with one's nature, and that nature in which God created us, created us upon. Because God is the creator of, of, of all things. And when he creates, he don't only, doesn't only create, he also fashions. And just like you would have, like, for example, an artist that puts his signature on his work of art, God has a signature on everything that he does. So it's then a sign that represents him and points back to him. You know, we have a joke that even the most uh, militant atheist is even a sign of God. <laughs> oh. That yep. same atheist, like, you know... You know is we that, have a lot of atheists that listen to our show. Oh, well, then that's no, no, no offense, but we, as Muslims, we'd say that, uh, you know, a person who, even a person who doesn't believe in God... Do Muslims have a problem with atheists? Or? No, we, we firmly believe... Are they that. free to not believe? They are free to not believe. We are very tolerant of, um, of anybody from any, any faith. We even, to an extent, embrace atheism. Right. What, oh, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? What are we saying, though? We're saying that an atheist has a part of Islamic belief. How? That the first thing that any believer, in, in any Muslim has to do, he has to for, for first negate the existence of any god. Oh, okay. So they're almost there. Because atheists are already negating yeah. all gods. So, yeah. They're kind of almost there. I, I, I have to tell people, I didn't make up the, um, there's no, the, the formulation for our... Yeah, explain that. What is, what is that? So it, it's uh, that there's no God. This is the first part. There's no God. So it starts by negation. Negation. And then affirmation. Then no God, but Allah. But we have to break it down with another causes. Because that's an important clause. It's a radical, radical introduction to God. Mm-hmm. That there's no God? Wow. And then accept Allah. So that, that the person who doesn't believe in, believe in God, um, they usually they do that. So the atheists are really just two words away. Because they just stop that <laughs> there's no God. We, we can say that. They're definitely just, they're, they're right there. But, you know, we, um, why do I say embrace or why do I say that we, um, well, I kind of explained it, but one of the reasons for kind of em- not embracing atheism, but to appreciate a person's willing to, willingness to inquire, to research, and to have a stance. Because some people go through their lives, well, I mean, having maybe never considered their, their religious identity. Maybe a person sat down and thought about it, that I look at this world and I've made the conscious decisions that I don't believe. And that they, 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 they do that in a way that, um, you know, they, they've given it consideration. They believe in science. Some, somehow well, many, science. Many do have. Muslims believe in science? Um, definitely. Um, of course, we have a particular approach to science that um, had, we have science concurring with, um, concurring with scripture. So that science is going to Excuse me. Science is going to corroborate what's in scripture, and scripture is going to corroborate what's in science. Now it's important to understand that even in science, and scientists will say, say this themselves, not everything in modern day science is concrete. It's something that's always changing. So we then have to, as most, as, especially as Muslims, be careful with, okay, you know, what do you, what do you firm on? So then we can say, okay, then we can have a comparison. Because if something is always changing, you then can't um, 
you then can't have a proper comparison, can you? Um, this so, just means somebody's calling this strobing light. Oh, it's not a fire alarm okay. or anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, you know, we can't have ringing phones, so then they just use light because oh. it'll disrupt the studio. All right. If every time a phone rings, mm. the imam was just looking around saying, like, what's happening uh, yeah, here? Do we have to evacuate? And it's a strobing light in the room. Yeah. Um, we're almost uh, out of time, but we're going to continue this conversation uh, next Thursday. Um uh, somebody sent them a, a question asking, uh, does the imam have a recommendation for a place or a way to study Islam or the Quran as a non-Muslim? I have an academic interest in learning more. Anything online he would recommend or endorse. So for a non-Muslim that wants to study Islam or the Quran, what are some of the places that you can invite them to I think there's a do? good website. Um, there's a website, there's a Seeker's Guidance. That's Seeker's with an S guidance.org that's one um, but then you also have is but that one is not necessarily academic right that, no, that one's actually very academic is it, but is it geared uh, to a Muslim audience or non-Muslim or both they have va varying degrees of lectures Okay. Um, also some articles but you can also go to different, different websites you have zaytuna.org has really good content that's mm -hmm. zaytuna Z-A-Y-T-U-N-A dot org, based in California, but really, really good content that's relevant to the um, American context and was designed for American society. Um, then you have Islam, is, is, Islami City, so that's Islam, I-S-L-A-M-I, City, I believe, dot org. They have really good articles as well. Um, Jerry uh, writes... Also, oh. Blogging Theology. Blogging Theology. That's a, that's a YouTube page, really good content. Okay. Blogging Theology. Somebody is saying, uh, something you said uh, resonated with them. They sent an email saying, your speaker is definitely onto something. I learned more um, about or to the Christianity part of the religion due to upbringing. But I'm positive I met God just before I went through my mom's body on my birth date. Uh, but the blinding light is what I saw. I'm not really sure what that means by, like, when they were born, they remember that incident. But um, um, there's a lot to be remembered in this regard, and we we affirm those experiences, especially when we corroborate those things in our scripture, that God, in the realm before this one, um, in the realm of the unseen, before we became physical bodies. So we can say that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. So in that spiritual realm, God actually looked at every single human soul and said, am I not your Lord? Mm. So face to face with every particular soul and ask this question. WMNF Tampa. So we're going to continue that conversation <laughs> next week. Uh, okay. True talk on WMNF.